We're here today, of course, to discuss the abdication of Reza Shah and Britain's role in this. Reza Shah was one of a number of 20th century nationalist leaders and strongmen whose purpose was to modernize their countries and to uh, end foreign domination and interference in their countries. A middle ranking uh, military officer, he seized power in 1921 and for the next 20 years as uh, commander of the army, prime minister, and eventually as king, he dominated and transformed Iran. Uh, his reign, his considerable achievements and his shortcomings have been amply covered by other writers and is not the subject of my lecture today. My focus would be on the events that led in 1941 to his unexpected fall from power on his uh, uh, abdication and exile uh, from the country to which he had devoted himself. I will also briefly touch on a curious episode in which the British, British considered doing away with the Pahlavi dynasty altogether and replacing it. When the Second World War broke out in 1939, Reza Shah declared Iran's neutrality. The reasons? He wanted to protect Iran against the ravages of the war. Iran had good trade relations with all the with the countries on both sides of the conflict. He wanted to protect his uh, ambitious economic projects from interruption. The Soviet Union provided the overland route, route through which goods passed between Iran and Europe. Britain was critical to the operations of the Iranian oil industry. Uh, and uh, which was the most important source of, of uh, foreign exchange revenue. Germany supplied almost all of the machinery for Iran's industries and was the principal purchaser of Iranian raw materials. Uh, German technicians were essential for the installation of plant in projects around the country. And even when the war broke out, German machinery for many of these plants was still sitting in German ports or in Trieste, awaiting onward shipment to, to Iran on nuclear vessels. I'm sorry, on neutral vessels. On the whole, Iranian neutrality suited both the powers on both sides of the conflict. Iran, as we have seen, provided a lucrative market for German industrial goods and a foothold in a part of the world dominated by Britain. Um, Iran's oil was crucial to the British war effort and England had no wish to push Reza Shah into the arms of the Germans. For these reasons, even under war conditions, the British went out of their way to supply Iran with the rails, locomotives, aircraft, and other crucial materials 
that he wished to purchase and also to accommodate Iran in other areas. For Britain, <clears throat> the problem, the fly in the ointment as it were, was the large German presence in Iran, especially in such strategic fields as the railways, communications and broadcasting. The British feared that many Germans in Iran were collecting intelligence and constituted a potential fifth column. They feared possible sabotage of oil installations uh, or communications lines, or an attempt to install a pro-German government in Tehran, as had almost happened in neighboring Iraq. Acting on instructions from his foreign secretary, the reader, Sir Reader Bullard, the British ambassador in Iran, <coughs> uh, repeatedly urged the Iranian government to reduce the number of Germans uh, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in the country. The Iranian government did take some steps in response to British urgings. They recalled to Tehran all Germans from the south to ease British concerns about uh, possible sabotage of the oil uh, fields. They sent a number of Germans home and kept close watch on the rest of the German community in Iran. They ensured that press reports uh, were neutral and did not favor either side in the conflict. Yet these measures proved um, insufficient to allay British concerns. The British well understood why Reza Shah was reluctant to send more Germans home. The Iranians, some of the reasons we've already touched on. In addition, the Iranians believed the Germans would regard uh, the large scale uh, expulsion of their nationals as a violation of Iranian neutrality and would, uh, uh, would uh, react against Iran. Uh, Bullard, the ambassador, <clears throat> on one occasion reported home that he had argued for a full hour with the Iranian prime minister, but he reported about reducing the German presence, uh, but he reported, I was unable to shake the prime minister. Operation Barbarossa, the German invasion of Russia in July, 1941, dramatically altered Britain's calculus on Iran. British officials feared that uh, the German troops would break through Russian lines and that once German forces swept through the Caucasus, Britain's position in Iran and her access to Iranian oil would be severely threatened. Moreover, the Soviet Union was now an ally, and the Russians proved even more concerned than the British over possible um, German fifth column activities along their long border uh, with Iran. Within days of Operation Barbarossa, 
Britain and the Soviet Union presented parallel and very stiff notes to the Iranian government calling for the severe reduction of Germans in the country. However, by late August, Iran had failed adequately to satisfy Anglo-Soviet demands regarding the Germans. And despite the Anglo-Soviet uh, focus on the German presence, far more important to the Allies, in my estimation, although they did not reveal this to the Iranians, was that access to Iran's overland routes to supply uh, a hard-pressed Russia with war material and other goods uh, became crucial to the war effort. The Allies recognized that uh, use of this overland route through Iran was incompatible with Iranian neutrality. Thus, the die was cast. Uh, Russian and British forces crossed into Iran early on the morning of August 25, 1941. The Russians from the north and the British from the south and east and rapidly occupied large parts of the country. Having occupied Iran, Britain and the Soviet Union needed control of communication routes and Iranian cooperation in facilitating the transport of goods through Iran from Iranian ports in the south to the Soviet Union. The Foreign Office at this stage displayed no wish or intention to unseat Reza Shah. On the contrary, <clears throat> when Bullard urged the Foreign Office to dissociate itself from Reza Shah, even to consider uh, unseating him, the Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, replied, I think our interests will best be served by continuing to deal with the Shah at any rate for the present. This was also Prime Minister Churchill's view. I found in the British archives a personal note from Churchill to Eden after he had met with his foreign secretary <coughs> shortly following the uh, occupation of Iran. Churchill wrote, quote, I was glad to gather from you last night that no attack on the person of the Shah is contemplated at present. Yet only two weeks later, <clears throat> Eden was seeking ways to bring about Reza Shah's fall from power. And we need now to consider the post-invasion events that led to the British decision to force Reza Shah from the throne. The role of the British ambassador in Tehran, Bullard's role, was crucial here, and I will take a minute to show why. When Bullard first presented his credentials to the Shah in January 1940, he wrote to the Foreign Office that he regarded it as one of his most urgent duties to convince the Iranian government that despite the war, Britain was doing its best to meet Iran's requirements and scarce materials. And in the year that followed, 
Bullard worked hard to accommodate the Shah in these and other crucial areas. However, by the end of his first year in Iran, Bullard's view of Reza Shah and Britain's relationship with the Iranian monarch had begun to alter. As he ages, he becomes more greedy, more arrogant and remote and more unpopular, he wrote of the Shah early in 1941. Bullard called attention to the burden of indirect taxation on the poor, the scarcity of bread, the high cost of basic foods, and Reza Shah's propensity to amass property by pressuring owners to sell at what Bullard called ridiculously low prices. Above all, Bullard's uh, view of Britain's relationship with Reza Shah was shaped by his growing belief that Iranians tended to see Reza Shah as a creature of the British and that this close association in the Iranian mind between England and an unpopular monarch was highly detri detrimental to British interests. On this last, this particular point, Bullard was much influenced by the views of his press attaché and Lambton. Lambton <coughs> spoke Persian fluently. She had traveled extensively in the country and had talked to Iranians of different classes. Her views therefore bore some weight. In a memorandum she wrote in the spring of 1941, that is before the Allied invasion of Iran, Lambton concluded that the vast majority of Iranians so hated Reza Shah that they would welcome German intervention in Iran. And that to them, quote, even the spread of war to Iran seems preferable to the continuation of the present regime. In his cover letter to the Foreign Office, dispatching Lambton's letter, uh, memorandum, Bullard endorsed Lambton's views and added, and I quote, public opinion in Iran is almost solidly against the Shah and almost as solidly persuaded that the Shah would not be on the throne were it not for the British. <clears throat> In his subsequent cables to the Foreign Office, Bullard continued to stress the damage identification with the Shah was doing to British standing in Iran. He urged his government to distance itself from the Shah. With the Anglo-Russian, in Anglo-Russian occupation of Iran imminent and then a reality, Bullard went even a step further concluding that the retention of the Shah on the throne was detrimental to British interests and that he must be driven out. Bullard's views on Reza Shah's unpopularity registered with the Foreign Office, but his insistence that Reza Shah must go did not, at least not initially. In the third week of the occupation, however, three factors, Bullard's reporting, developments on the ground, and the exigencies of the war 
led to a change. Eden and the British government itself concluded that Reza Shah must go. Let us now consider how these three factors played out uh, themselves. First, Bullard continued in cable after cable to the Foreign Office to hammer on the unpopularity of the Shah and the resulting unpopularity of the British because he said, people believe that the Shah remained in power due to British support. Bullard wrote, I quote, we really must show some sympathy with popular opinion in Persia or the weight of hostility to us will clog all our efforts. Eden initially remained unconvinced. The British government, he cabled Bullard back, appreciated the, list, the risk of alienating Iranian goodwill by cooperating with the Shah and appearing to support his rule. But he, Eden added, I quote, it is not clear that the time had come for concrete action, nor that it would be wise for his majesty's government openly to turn against the Shah. Eventually, Eden agreed to act on one of Bullard's uh, proposals. As a means of winning popular support for Britain in Iran, he first authorized the BBC's Persian language broadcasts from London and Delhi to promote the idea of constitutional government in Iran. Uh, and then after some hesitation, he authorized the BBC to broadcast direct and escalating criticism of Reza Shah for the forcible acquisition of land, for suppressing the press and manipulating elections, for government oppression and the prevailing poverty, for personal enrichment at public expense, and much more, three days of intensive broadcasts followed. The materials for these broadcasts were prepared by the press attaché in Iran and Lampton. The effect, according to one scholar, was devastating in its consequence. Lampton herself, not someone given to hyperbole, observed some time after the event, never, I suppose, as the BBC had such a success, for it was almost entirely due to the Persian broadcast from London that it, meaning the abdication, happened. <clears throat> Second, Bullard and the Foreign Office increasingly felt that the good intentions of the Iranian Prime Minister, Ali Furuhi, notwithstanding, Reza Shah was resisting and would continue to obstruct cooperation with the Allies. Under Allied pressure, <clears throat> Iran had agreed to shut down the German, Italian, Hungarian, and Romanian embassies in Tehran and <clears throat> to round up and hand over to the British and the Soviets 
all German and Italian nationals except for diplomatic staff. But this work went very slowly and the German ambassador was apparently continuing to conduct business from his embassy. The British concluded that Reza Shah was to blame and was working hand in hand with the Germans. The impression that Reza Shah would stand in the way of Allied aims was reinforced by a September 10 editorial in Etalaat, the country's most important newspaper and widely regarded as the organ of the state. The editorial regretted the violation of Iranian neutrality and the Allied occupation of Iran. It also regretted the shutting down or the necessity of shutting down the German uh, uh, embassy and that of its allies. Uh, the editorial went on to say that Iran would nevertheless maintain its own legations in these countries and continue diplomatic relations with them. Bullard was convinced <clears throat> that the editorial was inspired by the royal court and the, it did serious damage to Reza Shah's standing with both the Soviets and the British. Third, there was the sheer scope and rapidly escalating allied requirements from the Iranian government, which resulted in a significant rethinking of British policy on Iran and towards Reza Shah. Having occupied part, large parts of Iran, the British initially saw no need to enter the capital, Tehran, or to involve themselves in internal administration. However, once the full advantages of the complete control of Iran for the war effort became clear, British thinking changed dramatically. Within days of the occupation, the British chiefs of staff presented, presented an extensive list of the facilities they required in Iran. These included control or right to full use and development of all naval bases, ports, airports, railways, roads, telegraphs, and other forms of communication, the right to establish air defense systems to defend the oil fields and Abadan refinery, and the right to place allied personnel in key communication systems. Churchill too, was already envisioning, with American help, a massive supply operation across Iran to the Soviet Union, and much more. Ten days after the Allied occupation, he had told Stalin that it was best if neither country entered Tehran because, he said, all we want is the through route. But only six days later, Churchill informed the war cabinet, and I quote, Persia was now entirely in our hands. We must extend the scope of our original demands. We should have complete control of Persia during the war. Unusually, 
Churchill also dictated a personal message to Bullard, who he thought was not being firm enough. He informed Bullard that the facilities required by the military chiefs would be drastically interpreted, that to supply Russia, Iran's road and rail system would be developed at the utmost speed and at all costs, that large British forces and a powerful air force would be out operating out of Iran uh, in the following year, and that the Iranian government would have to give the allies faithful and loyal support, as he put it, to avoid an occupation of the capital. <clears throat> Churchill added, and I will quote, at the present time, we have not turned against the Shah, but unless good results are forthcoming, his misgovernment of his people will be brought into the account. Our requirements must somehow be met and it ought to be possible for you to obtain all the facilities we require bit by bit by using the possible leverage of a Russian occupation of Tehran. Within days, the foreign secretary Eden began to lay the grounds for the allied occupation of the capital. <clears throat> he informed the war cabinet on September 8th that given the difficulty of negotiating with the Iranian government and the unpopularity, unpopularity of the Shah, the allies might have to enter Tehran sooner or later. With the Soviet ambassador in London, Ivan Maisky, Eden had agreed that an allied advance into Tehran would take place on September 9, unless the Iranian government complied with a bunch of new allied demands. If the Iranians refused, Eden told Maisky, then the march on Tehran would continue. If the Iranians complied, Eden added, then we should be compelled to find some fresh reason for doing so. This I think was a striking indication that for Eden, the occupation of the capital was now the lever to bring about Reza Shah's fall from power. Britain and Russia eventually agreed on a joint entry into the capital on September 16, allegedly to prevent anarchy. At the same time, the British began to consider the best way to rid themselves of Reza Shah. <clears throat> when he first alerted the war cabinet to a possible entry into the capital on September 8, Eden also remarked, quote, that the best solution for us would be for the Shah to take flight when our forces drew near to Tehran. Discussing the same subject with Maisky, the Soviet ambassador, Eden told him that if the Allies entered Tehran as planned, it was my hope, Eden said, that the Shah would flee and disembarrass us accordingly. The two governments could then consult together about a successor, he told Maisky. The next day, Eden suggested to Maisky another solution to the Reza Shah problem. Perhaps, I'm quoting, perhaps the best solution of all would be if the Persian politicians 
were to invite us into Tehran in order to carry through a coup d'etat to get rid of the Shah, a view with which Maisky agreed. Following the incident over the Etelat editorial and after Maisky had observed that the sooner Reza Shah goes the better, Bullard was authorized to discuss a successor to Reza Shah with the Iranian government. <clears throat> On September 15, uh, uh, Eden informed the war cabinet that Russian and British forces would enter the capital the next day. And he added that if the Shah remained in the capital, quote, he would be under our control. And if he tried to leave Tehran to set up an independent government elsewhere in Iran, the Shah should be seized and held. The constitutional heir to the throne was Rada Shah's eldest son, Muhammad Reza, the crown prince. But the British now toyed with the idea of supporting someone other than the crown prince for the succession. The reasons were various and to me random. A chance remark by the crown prince had led Bullard erroneously to assume that Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the crown prince, was pro-German, an idea that resonated and remained with the foreign office. Maisky and other diplomats involved had a low opinion of the crown prince's abilities. Bullard had attributed the damaging Etelaot editorial to the crown prince, leading several members of the foreign office to conclude that this rendered Mohammad Reza unsuitable to, to succeed his father. Eden had then cabled Bullard regarding the editorial, quote, this incursion into politics on the part of the crown prince obviously rules him out as a possible successor to the Shah. Finally, Leo Amory, the Secretary of State for the Government of India had got it into his head that the British uh, should get rid of the Pahlavi dynasty altogether and that <coughs> Prince Hassan Qajar, the younger brother of the last uh, ruler of the Qajar dynasty, the very dynasty that Reza Shah had overthrown in 1925, would be a better king for England uh, than Reza Shah or his successor. In the muddled British discussion over the succession and given the doubts raised over the crown prince's suitability, even this improbable idea enjoyed a brief moment of serious consideration in England. Common sense prevailed and the day was saved for the Crown Prince due to Prince, Prime Minister Furuki and his foreign minister who spoke seriously to Bullard and also to Bullard himself. On September 15, on the eve of the Anglo-Soviet entry into Tehran and with the expectation that the Shah would as a result go, Bullard urgently cabled Eden that the crown prince would be the best choice. 
I see no better candidate for the throne at this time, he wrote. His reasons, the crown prince was the constitutional monarch and he would have little power. A quick succession would avoid disturbances and his accession would be accompanied by reforms. He noted that the Soviets were on board as well. Eden agreed two days later that the crown prince was acceptable, but only on trial and on condition of good behavior and provided as Bullard had suggested that there would be extensive reforms property illegally acquired by Reza Shah would be restored to the nation and that Reza Shah would leave the country and take all his other sons with him. Reza Shah first considered abdicating on August 26, the morning after the Anglo-Soviet invasion. He told his cabinet that he, that he was personally the object of Anglo-Soviet hostility and he didn't want to be the cause of further misfortune for his country. His cabinet on this occasion dissuaded him and perhaps he wished to be dissuaded. A month later, however, the situation had completely changed. The full extent of Allied control of Iran and what they would demand of the government became clear. Reza Shah was perhaps too proud to remain king in an occupied country. Most important, he must have sensed from his prime minister and from the BBC broadcasts that the Allies wanted him out and that even the, his son's succession was at risk if he remained. On the morning of September 16, hearing of the Russian advance on Tehran, he summoned his prime minister, asked him to draw up the deed of abdication and signed it. He left immediately for Isfahan, where he also signed all his vast properties uh, to the state. He was no longer a free man. He was now in the hands of the British who took charge of him. They would take him into exile and decide the place and conditions, first in Mauritius and then in Johannesburg. And they would hold him until his death three years later. In his memoir, The Camels Must Go, Sir Reader Bullard wrote that Reza Shah on his own elected to leave. I'm quoting, the common story that Reza Shah was deposed by the Allies seems to be baseless, he wrote. But the weight of evidence and Bullard's own cables suggests otherwise. True, Reza Shah, given the situation, had decided in the end to abdicate and sentiment in the country had turned against him. In his desire to maintain Iran's neutrality and Iran's links with Germany, Reza Shah perhaps failed to grasp the gravity of the, his situation once the Allied, Allies occupied Iran. But it was Bullard who for many months had made the case that association with Reza Shah was damaging to Britain's vital interests. Bullard too, 
in language direct and indirect, repeatedly impressed on his government the desirability of getting rid of Reza Shah. Once the Allies allied occupied um, uh, Iran, Eden looked ways, as we saw, to pressure Reza Shah to leave office through flight, a British-inspired coup, or the Shah's fear of the Russians. The government directed BBC broadcasts were deliberately designed to bring pressure on the Shah and to stoke popular uh, uh, feelings against him. <clears throat> Bullard, in his one of his dispatches, in fact, uh, <clears throat> uh, acknowledged the key uh, uh, role Britain played with, with local assistance in causing Reza Shah to abdicate. We drove the Shah out, he said, but change was effected very capably by the cabinet. Bullard's recommendations that the Shah should cede all his wealth and also leave the country and take all his sons with him were also realized. British officials knew with near certainty that Reza Shah would ab abdicate if Allied troops entered the capital. On September 16, the Allies did so and Reza Shah as foreseen, gave up his throne. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Professor. We have several questions coming in for you from viewers, so I'll get right into it. Uh, one viewer writes, Turkey was also a convenient supply route for Russia with pro-German sentiments. Why is it spared a similar treatment by the Allies? Well, I think, as I said, for the Allies, the use of the overland route through Iran to supply Russia became crucial once Hitler invaded Russia and Russia became an ally in the war. And the sea routes, the northern sea routes to Russia were dangerous because of U-boats and anyway, unnavigable because of frost in the winter. So Iran really became crucial. I think despite their emphasis on the German presence in Iran, which was a consideration, the Allies needed Iran and Iran's neutrality stood in the way. Thank you. Your book um, deals with this at more length, but a viewer asks, what do the British archives tell us about Reza Shah's wealth? Oh, um, well, not only the British archives, but material in Iran has revealed a great deal about that. And in fact, I have a chapter in my book about his wealth. And it came from a number of sources. First of all, he acquired uh, an enormous amount of land uh, all over the country, but particularly in, in the North. And he did so by coercing <clears throat> owners to sell and uh, also through confiscation. Uh, and uh, by the time he left Iran, he was probably the, the largest landlord uh, in, the, in the country. It's interesting, uh, and, and as, I, as I mentioned in the, in the lecture, he, he 
was, I suppose, coerced into handing over back all his wealth to his son before he left Iran. It's interesting that uh, uh, leaving for exile, he was very worried about his uh, financial condition uh, ab abroad, uh, especially since he took a large number of members of his family with him. And he kept uh, uh, worrying his son to supply him with money during his exile. Thank you. Um, viewers are thanking you for a fascinating presentation. One viewer says, how do you think this history contributed to Mohammad Reza Shah's insecurity and uncertainty in the face of the unrest of 1978 and 1979? Well, I, I certainly think it was, it was a factor. Um, after all, uh, Mohammad Reza Shah came to the throne at the age of, nine, of 21, I think with very little experience following a very powerful, very decisive monarch, his father, and under allied occupation. And during the war, the British and the Soviets uh, didn't treat him terribly well. Uh, uh, so <clears throat> in 1978, he, during the huge demonstrations and protests against his rule led by Ayatollah Khomeini, he may have sensed uh, a repeat and uh, even said to the British ambassador that uh, we say, we Iranians say, if you lift a mullah's beard, you will see the British flag underneath. So he may have imagined, I'm not sure, that once again, the, the British and perhaps the Americans were behind <clears throat> these protests um, against him. But we must also remember he had been king by then for a great many years. He'd become very strong and powerful and decisive in his own right. Uh, so yes, uh, maybe his experience in 1941 was a factor, but I don't think it was the main factor. <clears throat> Thank you. A viewer is asking, do you know why Reza Shah in his final years sent many of his close supporters, ministers, the prime minister and so forth to internal exile and had them killed, I think? Was it intelligence misinformation or personal fear? Well, he had a very suspicious mind. And, and I think as he grew older and, and uh, more autocratic and less in touch with public opinion. Uh, he grew more suspicious. And there were always, you know, men around him, rivals, enemies of rivalries in the royal court uh, who whispered in his ear. For example, Taymur Tash, his minister of court for many, many years, and perhaps <clears throat> after Reza Shah, the most powerful man in Iran, was no doubt brought down by rumors and, and, uh, and Taymur Tash's rivals and enemies in, in, in Iran who wanted to see him weaken. 
Thank you. Lots of questions coming in. Um, uh, going back to the question of Reza Shah's wealth, a viewer asks, did Muhammad, um, Pahlavi, Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi inherit all of Reza Shah's wealth? Uh, well, he yes, he did inherit all of it, but it was it was to be used for the good of the people. And in fact, uh, uh, in fact, the Shah uh, donated a great part of it to to various government projects and schools and that kind of thing. In fact, uh, uh, in my book, I I quote Bullard as saying. Uh, that the Shah, that the young Shah, was in need of money because he had given away or spent uselessly the wealth he had inherited. So he didn't stay with the young Shah for long. Thank you. A few questions about the role of the BBC. Uh, one viewer asks, if you could please comment further about the alignment of BBC with the policies of the British government at different times. What you said about the BBC brings to mind the role of the, that the BBC played in the 1953 coup. And a second question, a viewer asks, as a former journalist and commentator, in your opinion, what is the fascination of Iranian people with the BBC? And how many times can a nation be deceived by the same source? <laughs> a complicated question. Um, well, in, in 1941, as I mentioned in my lecture, clearly the BBC attacks and criticism of Reza Shah clearly had an impact. Uh, but this was a a decision taken by the British government. In other words, in, in 1941, the BBC broadcasts against Reza Shah reflected British government policy. I don't think this was the case in 1978. Uh, in 1978, the British government certainly did not wish the Shah to go. But by then, the BBC had achieved enough independence that journalists on the BBC became a big focal point for uh, uh, for reports on demonstrations on protests and so forth and sure they became a, a source of news for many many Iranians um, your uh, our listeners also asked about the Brit Iranian fascination with the BBC <laughs> well, you know, there's always this belief among Iranians that the British control everything and are responsible for everything. Certainly this idea was widespread in my father's generation. And some of that remained and remains perhaps today. But it was also a very good source of news. Um, I remember uh, during the war, <clears throat> my family came to Iran, I was born in Iran, but came to Iran from Baghdad. And uh, I remember during the war, we had a, a, a big radio transmitter and all his friends would join in our house uh, to hear news on the BBC about the progress of the war and the fear, of course, that the Germans were getting closer to Iran and might invade <coughs> Iran. And it, it remains today a very good source of news. <clears throat> and if you have a government that, uh, that uh, controls 
and and uh, suppresses the news, then people look for uh, reliable foreign sources, the BBC, the Voice of America, other sources like that. <clears throat> Thank you. How reliable was British information regarding Reza Shah's unpopularity? Was it merely unpopularity with the upper classes or was it across the board? What did the British base this information on prior to the BBC's campaign to incite it's further very, popularity? Very good, it's a very good question and I think it's hard to answer. I mean, certainly by the end of his reign, uh, Reza Shah had, was no longer as popular as he had once been, <clears throat> partly because of economic conditions, partly because of the weight of taxation, especially um, on on the uh, uh, on the peasantry and and uh, and on the peasantry, um, whether the unpopularity was to the extent that Anne Lambton in his her her, her important memorandum indicated, I really am not sure, and. Uh, and cannot say, uh, I mean, but certainly the idea that, that Reza Shah was unpopular and therefore England was unpopular as a result, as we saw, played a very important role in the decision to unseat Reza Shah. Thank you. What do you think of how today's Iranians, young and old, perceive Reza Shah and Iran's recent modern history? And then a similar question, maybe a viewer asks, having studied Reza Shah so thoroughly, what is your personal impression of him? A patriot, a nationalist, a strongman, or a weak despot? Um, the, the first part of the question, sorry, repeated. What do you think of how today's Iranians, young and old, perceive Reza Shah and Iran's recent modern history? Well, it's very interesting that now, after 40 years and more of the Islamic Republic, Reza Shah has once again become popular in Iran and uh, a source of some admiration. I mean, looking back for Iranians at a time when uh, Iran was strong, independent, uh, and of course, Reza Shah took a great many steps to reduce the power of the clergy in Iran. He's remembered for that as well. Um, and it was a, an, a period of, re, of reform, of recovery, of a very weak, at the time, uh, 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 country. Uh, so yes, I mean, in, in recent protest demonstrations in Iran, uh, people shouted, um, Reza Shah, may God rest his soul in peace. So yes, once again, to the horror of the Mullahs, that the Pahlavi dynasty, who they unseated and tried to denigrate, has become popular once again. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, two similar questions. One viewer writes, was Muhammad Ali Farooqi on Reza Shah's side or was he welcoming to the abdication of the Shah? And another viewer writes, thank you very much for your excellent presentation. I would appreciate it if you could explain the crucial role that apparently Farooqi played in securing Muhammad Reza Shah's accession to the throne. Um, on Farooqi, 
he was certainly a faithful public servant. And he served not only Reza Shah, but his son uh, well. Um, it is quite possible that as Bullard reported by uh, the late 19, by the, by 1941, Fourouri and other ministers has, had begun to feel that Reza Shah was a problem because he had become such an autocrat and so impossible to please. Uh, but it seems to me the evidence is that uh, Fourouri and his uh, foreign secretary, his foreign minister, really saved the crown for the Pahlavis. Uh, when Bullard reported to Eden that he thought allowing the crown prince to succeed Reza Shah was the best solution. He was uh, reflecting uh, opinion he had heard and urgings from Fourouri and, uh, 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 and his foreign minister. Thank you. Um, a question about Reza Shah in exile. How was he treated by the British? And can you touch on the circumstances that led him to be transferred to Mauritius? Why Mauritius? Why did he stay there for a short period only? And did he have a rather isolated, lonely life there? Or was he surrounded by members of his family? Well, when Reza Shah abdicated, he believed he, he had the understanding that he could uh, uh, choose his own place of exile. And he was uh, disappointed and surprised when he learned uh, on his way to pass through India, not to stay, but to pass through, that he would be taken to Mauritius. Mauritius was chosen because it was an island. You know, it was distant from anywhere else. And they didn't want Reza Shah certainly anywhere near Iran, or uh, as they feared continuously during his exile, that uh, he could be used by other governments against the British. Um, as to how they treated him, well, I mean, physically they treated him well, you know, they, they found housing for him, they uh, agreed at least in Mauritius to, uh, cover his expenses, having taken him into exile. Um, but he was under British control. I mean, they decided his place of exile. They decided who could visit him, even members of his own family. Uh, they censored his bail. And this remained the case both in Mauritius and Johannesburg. But Reza Shah hated Mauritius. It was an island, it was... Uh, you know, in the middle of nowhere. He didn't like the sea air, as he said again and again, he was a mountain man and longed for the mountain air of his native country. So after a period in Mauritius, the British finally agreed uh, to allow him to transfer to Johannesburg. And uh, the South Africans agreed to allow him to stay. Thank you. What role, if any, did religious leaders in Iran play in Reza Shah's departure? I think very little. Really, they had nothing to do with Reza Shah's departure. Mm -hmm. 
And can you comment on the alleged popularity of Germany and Hitler among Iranians at the time within different um, areas of society, the masses, the intellectuals, or even Reza Shah himself? Well, I think to, to, to talk about Reza Shah first, um, after his abdication, it became common to assert that he was pro-German and even an admirer of the Nazis. I don't think there's any evidence uh, to bear that out. On the contrary, even Bullard reported uh, to the Foreign Office that he believed that, you know, Reza Shah was uh, avoiding siding with either side among the belligerents, but if his true uh, preferences were to be known, he'd be on the British side. Uh, but of course, Germany was admired in Iran at the time as a successful industrial power, as the source of ad advanced uh, industry and machinery and the like. And you know, Iran, Germany had become Iran's largest trading partner before um, Reza Shah's abdication. Thank you. We have so many more questions and comments that we don't have time to get to. Thank you for a fascinating conversation. A reminder that Professor Bakhash's book, The Fall of Reza Shah, is available through Bloomsbury. There's a link in our chat. Um, thank you, Professor. We hope you stay safe and well, and hopefully we'll see you at Stanford in the near future. Thank you, and thank you to all our audience. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.